Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic. In each podcast, we aim to provide relevant and helpful information for healthcare professionals involved in cardiac, vascular, and thoracic specialties. Enjoy. I'm Michael Linkoff, one of the interventional cardiologists of the Cleveland Clinic and director of C5 Research, our academic research organization. Today I'm going to talk about uh, some of the major trials that were presented at the American College of Cardiology meeting in 2019 at uh, New Orleans. This meeting actually had a number of trials that were of great interest and importance in the medical and cardiologic community. And I will focus on three major areas, uh, the first being the use of uh, transcatheter aortic valve replacement in low-risk patients the second uh, in cardiac electrophysiology, and the third in antithrombotic therapies in patients with uh, percutaneous coronary intervention or atrial fibrillation. There was probably the most uh, excitement and interest regarding two trials that were presented in a uh, session back-to-back of late-breaking clinical trials on the topic of low-risk patients uh, who require aortic valve replacement. The field has of transcatheter aortic valve replacement has uh, systematically evaluated the role of catheter valves in patients who were either at extreme risk, and that is uh, prohibitive risk for surgery, or high risk or moderate risk for surgery in trials which either compared to standard of care, medical care for patients who are prohibitive or against uh, conventional surgical aortic valve replacement for patients who are high and low risk. In each of those cases, the effectiveness of the transcatheter valve was confirmed and it compared to medical therapy was shown to be superior compared to surgical therapy for high or moderate risk patients was shown to be non-inferior. These two studies actually set out to look at now the patients who are low risk for whom there currently is not an approved indication for the transcatheter valve and surgical valve replacement remains the standard of care. The first of these was the PARTNER-3 trial which evaluated the Edwards valve uh, in uh, patients with, who were considered to be at low risk by virtue of an estimated uh, 30-day mortality of less than 4%. So this is a low-risk group of patients. Uh, these patients uh, were randomized either to receive the uh, Sapien-3 valve or the conventional surgical uh, valve replacement with a uh, bioprosthetic valve. A total of 1,000 patients were admitted, and the primary endpoint of that study was uh, death, stroke, or uh, cardiac rehospitalization through one year. The uh, transcatheter valve turned out to uh, have a very excellent performance. The uh, uh, clinical endpoint, uh, the primary endpoint, was actually reduced by about 50% in patients who received TAVR rather than surgical valve replacement with reductions in mortality, uh, reductions in rehospitalization, and marked reduction of about 70% actually in the risk of stroke. Stroke, if you uh, recall, had been a concern with some of the earlier valves, uh, but the stroke rate actually in the, in the TAVR group was about 0.6%, exceedingly low um, in this trial. The other trial was the Evolute Low. This used the Medtronic uh, supraannular self-expanding valve, one of three different uh, uh, models that were available at the time of the over the time of the trial. This trial enrolled about 1,400 patients, 1,500 patients. This the uh, uh, prior trial had enrolled about 1,000, so also very well sized, uh, and again randomized either TAVR or a bioprosthetic valve. This was a group of low risk patients actually who were estimated to have a risk of about 3% of mortality over the first uh, uh, 30 days. 
Uh, it was a uh, somewhat complex Bayesian adaptive uh, statistical design, but the bottom line was the, the TAVR valve, again, was non-inferior to the, um, the surgical valve replacement and also was associated with a lower risk of stroke, again, with very low rates of stroke in the TAVR arm. The uh, additional benefits in both of these trials of the uh, TAVR uh, valve replacement was uh, reduced hospitalization stays, reduced atrial fibrillation, improved uh, quality of life early on, which might be expected given that surgical replacement requires some period of recovery. The increase in uh, pacemaker rate, the requirement for per permanent pacemaker rate seen with the Medtronic valve in the past was also seen in this trial of about 15%. So these trials really could have substantial impact, and uh, again, there was great excitement uh, at the time of the meeting, and in fact, the panelists looked at this as sort of a landmark in the treatment of valvular heart disease. We now have trials, large-scale, randomized trial evidence showing across the spectrum of, of risk, from the highest risk that is prohibitive for surgery all the way down to now low-risk conventional elective uh, aortic valve replacement, that the uh, TAVR valve, the transcatheter valve rather than surgical valve, performs at least as well as surgery and in some cases now with a low risk uh, appears to be a superior option. And as the uh, surgeons and panelists and uh, cardiologists who discussed after this, uh, these presentations uh, pointed out, it's going to be a, a time of evolution to, to determine which patients now uh, continue to have uh, primary indication for surgery rather than uh, for the TAVR valve. So this TAVR procedure will likely be expanded in terms of its indication and the number of patients that could be uh, treated with this less invasive approach. The next field or, or subspecialty that, for which there was substantial interest was uh, that of cardiac electrophysiology. The Apple Heart Study uh, was uh, a, a unique sort of practical um, uh, efficacy study that uh, was was performed by the Stanford group and, and actually had a session dedicated entirely, a late-breaking clinical trial session dedicated entirely to this trial. This was a trial that assessed the use of the Apple Watch that has the capability of, of measuring heart rhythm, creating what's called a tachygram, and, and can assess, and does so on a, a periodic basis, can assess whether heart rhythm is regular or irregular. And the goal of this was to determine what the correlation was with the, the ability of this watch to actually detect atrial fibrillation. Now, the newer watches, the brand new, uh, the most recent version that actually has an electrocardiogram in it, was not included in this study as the study was performed before that watch became available. But this used the um, technology that allowed it to measure the rhythm. So through the uh, iPhone itself, uh, patients were enrolled, and, and the intent was to enroll a huge number of patients in a simple large trial over a short period of time. And they enrolled 450,000 patients over a period of about eight months throughout the in 50, uh, all 50 United uh, States in the, uh, in the, in the country um, into this trial where patients uh, had a, an app downloaded where if a uh, five or six um, sequential tachygrams showed uh, some irregularity, the patients would be alerted. And then they would have the opportunity to contact a telemedicine physician who was part of the study for, for uh, further evaluation. So of the 450,000 patients that were enrolled in the trial, about 2,100, so about 0.5%, uh, received an alert over a period over, during their monitoring period. 
Now, so this rate was uh, very low in the patients under 40. It was about 0.2% of the patients under 40. But patients over 65, it was about 3% or more. And, and, um, and in fact, 25,000 or so patients over 65 were enrolled in the study. These were all intended to be patients who had no known history of atrial fibrillation. So these were patients for whom this was not a known diagnosis, although on, in retrospect, some of those patients had had uh, atrial fibrillation in the past. So of the 2,100, that, that received an alert, then those who chose to contact the telemedicine physician, as, as suggested, uh, and then they received a patch that would measure, actually measure the ECG over a period of seven days, uh, and 450 received the patch and actually sent it back. And of those 450 that received the patch over that one-week period, at least one episode of atrial fibrillation was detected in about a third. And if you looked at the concordance, that is, of the patients who had the patch, and during the time that they actually had atrial fibrillation, their tachygram uh, uh, the, with, with the watch was very predictive. It was about an 80% positive predictive value. So uh, when we were able to actually monitor simultaneously, about 80% of the time when that tachygram alerted them, they were actually having atrial fibrillation. And then, of course, they uh, could follow up either through the telemedicine physicians or with their own physicians, and many of them uh, underwent consideration for uh, uh, anticoagulant anti therapy, which would be the uh, a uh, treatment of, of, uh, of choice in patients who had a, a score, uh, a risk score, uh, suggestive of risk of stroke. This was preliminary data and the final follow-up. There's going to be a lot of uh, um, evaluation of the, of the data that follows in terms of what happened to these patients, et cetera. But it was a very interesting study in that it indicated that, A, there is not a trivial incidence of atrial fibrillation in, in asymptomatic patients, and that this watch does have the capability of alerting uh, patients who can then go on to have further evaluation and may detect atrial fibrillation. Of course, there's also the concern about how many patients didn't have atrial fibrillation, what would be the rate of false, false positives, but it was a fairly efficient algorithm for actually evaluating with the use of this patch that was sent by mail uh, and actually allowed uh, a fairly high positive predictive value. And of course, there's the potential with the newer watch version that actually can measure an ECG and send a PDF of that, that there may be even improved positive predictive value and less in the way of false positives. So this was a very interesting um, and sort of... Uh, trailblazing uh, evaluation of a large trial and the opportunity to, to use telemedicine to, to treat or evaluate large, large populations and make diagnoses of important uh, arrhythmias. The other study in the cardiac electrophysiology uh, field that was of interest and a landmark in its way uh, and also of particular interest to us as it was led by physicians here at the Cleveland Clinic was the RAPID trial, uh, W-R-A-P-I-T. This was a trial that uh, tested a, a polymer mesh envelope in which uh, antibiotic is embedded and, and uh, elutes uh, that can wrap cardiac implantable electronic devices such as pacemakers or defibrillators or um, uh, cardiac uh, um, resynchronization devices for use to prevent pocket infections uh, after implantation of these cardiac devices. Now, pocket infections occur uh, in a couple percent of patients, particularly those who are high risk, and I'll, I'll go through that, what some of those criteria are, and can have devastating consequences. Uh, it, it often re usually require device extraction, often require lead extraction, which although can be performed safely, do carry risks of mortality and morbidity. And despite the fact that standards of care have moved uh, toward 
you know, routine use of periprocedural peri antibiotics, uh, patients still develop pocket infections. So this is a, an important need. So this envelope is designed, it, it has uh, two antibiotics, rifampin and acycline, uh, and it's designed to elute the antibiotic into the pocket over a period of about seven days, and then the, the um, mesh itself dissolves over a period of months, uh, is biodegradable uh, thereafter. And so the, the idea of the trial was whether or not use of this would reduce the, the risk of pocket infection in patients who are considered high risk for pocket infection. And those were patients who needed revision or replacement of an existing generator or needed upgrade of the generator or who were having placement of cardiac resynchronization therapy by ventricular pacing. So these are from from prior data are known to be patients who are particularly high risk to develop a uh, pocket infection. Uh, so the, this was one of the largest, if not the largest, trial in uh, electrophysiology in terms of device trials. Nearly 8,000 patients enrolled in this trial. Um, and they were randomized to receive either a bare, you know, the typical conventional uh, implantation or a, a, uh, a device that's, that was wrapped in the, uh, uh, the pocket, the envelope. Um, and then followed for one year. And the primary endpoint was the incidence of a pocket infection. So the device was successful. It reduced the risk of pocket infection by about 40%, from 1.2% in the standard uh, of care arm to about 0.7% the uh, antibiotic pocket. And complications associated with the use of it, procedural complications were the same in both arms. So the this perhaps slightly larger pocket they needed to use with the, uh, the envelope or the, the biodegrading process did not, uh, did not result in any complications, procedural or over the follow-up period. So this, and, and this is in the setting of excellent standard of care. Ninety-eight percent of patients uh, received periprocedural antibiotics and, of course, all the other uh, uh, pocket washes, et cetera, that are, that are part of the standard of care for this implantation. So this is a meaningful uh, advance in the uh, safety and protection of patients who have to receive uh, uh, higher risk uh, cardiac implantable electronic devices. The third uh, topic that was of interest was on the uh, uh, use of antiplatelet and anticoagulant therapies in patients uh, receiving coronary intervention. Um, the, the larger trial uh, was the Augustus trial, and this was a trial of uh, over 4,000 patients which evaluated what to do in patients who uh, require antiplatelet therapy for either a coronary stent uh, or an, an acute coronary syndrome or both and also require an anticoagulant because of atrial fibrillation. So depending upon the series, it's estimated that anywhere in the range of 5% or more of patients who undergo coronary stenting also have atrial fibrillation and require anticoagulation. And the problem, of course, is that the anticoagulants classically don't protect against stent thrombosis, and the dual antiplatelet therapy, which protects the stents, doesn't protect against uh, the risk of thromboembolism, particularly stroke associated with atrial fibrillation. And so classically, these patients are treated with so-called triple antithrombotic therapy, that is aspirin, a P2Y12 inhibitor, and an anticoagulant. And it's very well known and, and uh, clearly demonstrated that triple therapy is associated with a substantially higher risk of bleeding, particularly in high-risk individu individuals, than uh, either sets of therapy alone. So several different trials in the, in, in, the, in the recent past have set out to try to simplify or reduce the intensity of these anti-thrombotic uh, regimens in patients who have both an indication for uh, antiplatelet therapy and an indication for anticoagulant therapy because of atrial fibrillation. In the past, these trials have focused on either 
using a single antiplatelet agent, that is stopping the aspirin in addition to an anticoagulant, or by reducing the dose of the anticoagulant, and this is with the newer anticoagulants, the novel or the direct anticoagulants, reducing the dose to below that, which is the standard labeled tested dose for uh, stroke uh, prevention. Um, and these trials in general have shown reduced rates of bleeding associated with these attenuated regimens or these, these simplified or decreased intensity regimens. But it's been difficult to sort out what has been the, what's been the, the, the mechanism by which these have, have been beneficial. Has it been the switch to a, a single antiplatelet agent or has it been the reduction in the dose? And these doses are, are below those that are known in the large-scale trials to have protected against stroke. And none of these prior trials were large enough to be completely conclusive regarding whether or not the risk of stroke was reduced. So the Augustus trial was uh, an interesting and, and, and uh, here prior and, and, and not previously st structure of a two-by-two two factorial design where patients who uh, either had uh, undergone stenting, and that was about 70% of patients, or had an acute coronary syndrome, which was about 60% of patients, there was an overlap. Only about a third didn't receive a stent. Those were medically managed for acute coronary syndrome. So uh, these patients were randomized in a two-by-two two factorial design, and they had no atrial fibrillation, to either receive warfarin, a vitamin K antagonist, or uh, the direct uh, factor 10 inhibitor of Pixaban, the oral factor 10 inhibitor of Pixaban, and then in a separate factorial randomization to either aspirin, low-dose aspirin, 81 milligrams a day, or placebo. And then the, uh, the evaluate, and this was for six months, after which time they re returned to whatever their standard of care was. And the primary endpoint was over that period of time, uh, the risk of, of, of major bleeding. Uh, th that is uh, using the definitions of clinically significant major bleeding uh, with secondary endpoints which included ischemic events. So the by the different comparisons, the, uh, re the apixaban, and this apixaban was at full dose, so 5 milligrams twice a day. This is the dose that's been proven in the large trials to uh, protect against stroke as well as or better than warfarin. So the issue of stroke was not, not, not in question. So the uh, apixaban versus vitamin K antagonist uh, randomization resulted in about 50% reduction in the risk of bleeding. Uh, with actually about a 50% reduction in the risk of stroke as well, interestingly. The aspirin versus no aspirin randomization, so versus placebo, resulted in about a 50 to 60, 60% or so risk reduction in the risk of bleeding. And the combination, if you look at the four potential combinations, it was um, uh, markedly reduced in the patients who received a pixaban uh, and a uh, 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 placebo rather than aspirin, so apixaban uh, uh, alone. Now, all of these patients received as background therapy a P2Y12 inhibitor, uh, and in the vast majority of cases that was clopidogrel. Uh, over 90% of those patients received clopidogrel, not a third generation. So on a P2Y12 inhibitor and apixaban, these were the best outcomes. Patients had marked, markedly reduced risk of bleeding uh, and similar ischemic uh, event rates, including the risk of stroke over, the, uh, over all four arms. So this showed a remarkable degree of safety of this combination of clopidogrel, 
and apixaban in these patients uh, with, with protection against the, the thrombotic and the ischemic complications. And this was not a, trivially, a trivial risk group. So they had a CHADS2 VASCOR, uh, an average of four, which is a clear indication for uh, a uh, anticoagulant for the risk of stroke. Uh, and they were an average of below one week since their acute coronary syndrome or um, um, the stent implantation. So it's, they were not far out from the, the procedure. In fact, they could be enrolled as, as quickly as immediately after the procedure, uh, but the, the median or, or mean was approximately one week afterward. So in this group of patients for whom uh, the, the, the risk of bleeding with triple therapy is substantial, this is a substantial advance in simplifying their regimen and really proves with great comfort that we can protect against stroke with the atrial fibrillation and have uh, good safety with regard to the stent and ischemic events. The other uh, trial that was presented in the, in the setting of, of simplifying uh, antithrombotic therapies was the GLASI trial. This was a sub-study of the very large global leader study, uh, which had been uh, published last year in, uh, in, in 2018 in Lancet. So stepping back a bit, global leaders uh, it was a trial, a simplified trial, uh, large scale, uh, superimposed on, on normal practice of patients undergoing coronary intervention of about 16,000 patients uh, around the world. And the trial sought to, to determine for the first time whether or not we can eliminate aspirin from the combination of dual antiplatelet therapy uh, in patients who've gone, undergone coronary stenting. And so this trial randomized patients to a, an experimental arm of aspirin plus ticagravir for one month, after which the aspirin was stopped and the patients were followed for two years on ticagravir monotherapy alone after stent. And in the control arm, Patients uh, either received uh, um, aspirin plus clopidogrel if they were elective indications or aspirin plus ticagrelor if they were uh, uh, acute coronary syndrome indications. Um, and those patients, as they say, were followed for about two years. The trial overall showed similar outcomes in the two treatment groups. That is, similar rates of ischemic events, so the removal of aspirin did not increase the risk of ischemic events, uh, and similar rates of bleeding over the course of the trial. Now that trial, again, was a large, simple trial in which investigators' assessment of endpoints were, were used and, and, and there was very little interference in normal standard of care, but also very little in the way of granular, detailed uh, endpoint uh, uh, assessment. The GLASI trial um, took a subset of those patients, so of about 7,000 7, patients uh, at selected sites, and then uh, applied adjudication and more detailed endpoint assessment, uh, recognizing, uh, as the FDA has, that adjudication of endpoints uh, allows much more granular and accurate assessment uh, and uh, unbiased assessment, because of course this was open label, um, and uh, assessed endpoints of death, myocardial infarction, uh, reinfarction, stroke, uh, revascularization, etc. And their findings were similar but with some interesting uh, uh, variations. Uh, the first finding was that although ischemic events were, were similar over the course of the period of time, uh, over the two years, um, remember that for the first year in the control arm, patients are receiving uh, aspirin plus a, a P2Y12 inhibitor, and after the first year, they then switched over to uh, aspirin alone, whereas in the treatment arm, they received ticagrelor after one month alone. And after one year, the ticagrelor monotherapy was associated with a substantial reduction, about a 70% reduction in the risk of late stent thrombosis and late myocardial infarction compared to aspirin alone. 
So where for many of us, practice after one year of dual antiplatelet therapy is to drop the P2Y12 inhibitor and continue with aspirin, this trial actually showed fairly compelling evidence that if once you reach a point that you may want to drop your one of the two antiplatelets, that aspirin would be the better drug to drop, and that ticagrelor or monotherapy uh, after one year is associated with a later risk of uh, stent thrombosis. Um, and similarly, it, it assured us of the safety of ticagrelor monotherapy even within that first one-year period from one month to 12 months, where the rates of ischemic events were ex uh, exactly the same as those with uh, aspirin and uh, uh, AP2Y12. And again, bleeding rates were the same over the, uh, over the, in general over the entire period. So this trial added to our knowledge because it provides very a reassuring information in a more detailed granular uh, endpoint assessment of the safety of monotherapy with ticagrelor after stenting uh, after one month uh, and the advantage of monotherapy with a P2Y12 inhibitor ticagrelor rather than continuing aspirin once, uh, if, if in practice, we stop dual antiplatelet therapy after one year. So again, a very interesting uh, meeting. Uh, there were several other trials, of course, presented uh, in, in, in prevention, in heart failure, uh, but this is a sampling and, and, and I uh, hope you found that interesting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.